Today's lesson is from Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel according to St. John in the 8th chapter, beginning at the 31st verse. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide... In my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The child remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the gospel of Christ. So remain standing, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak to us, reveal yourself to us. So I would pray in light of that truth that I as preacher would just get out of the way. There'd be far, far less of me, far, far more of you, that your people gathered would be edified and your son Jesus glorified, for we ask this in his name. Amen. Would you be seated, please? This fall, we're finishing up our series, our year-long series in the book of John, But there's no more profitable use of our time than to get to know more deeply, more truly, Jesus, the King of a new creation. Now we find ourselves in a section of John, chapters 7 through 8, that as Orvin and James have said before, is Jesus' conversation in the midst of the Feast of Shelters, or Tabernacles. 
During this feast, families would, for a period of seven days, live in a temporary shelter made of tree branches. And they were remembering their ancestors' journey, rescued by God from slavery in Egypt, brought through the desert to the promised land. It was an absolutely joyous feast, and it was marked by three core elements. A water ceremony, a light ceremony, and embedded in the heart of the feast liturgy, a core affirmation of who God is. In the water ceremony, which was very dramatic, they were remembering that in the desert, their ancestors were, were without water. And so Moses sought the face of God, and God directed him to take his rod and to strike a rock, and he does so, and out comes water, and the people are saved. The water ceremony remembered that event, and alongside it, a biblical promise that one day God would, by way of his Spirit, shower living water upon his people. And at that very moment in the feast, Jesus stands up, addresses the crowd, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink, for out of their hearts will come rivers of living water. In the light ceremony, also very dramatic, the people remembered that in the desert, they didn't get lost. For God guided them. God is light, guiding them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And at that very time in the feast, Jesus stands up, addresses the crowd, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you will never walk in darkness. Now, those are some incredible claims, right? How have the people been responding to this? Well, actually, quite well. So compelling his teaching, his character, his work, that by the end of the text last week, we hear that many believed in him. And then at the beginning of our text, Jesus turns to those who've believed in him and engages them in further conversation. But by the end of it, they don't believe in him. In fact, they've picked up rocks with murderous intent. Why could Jesus not just have left well enough alone? They already believed in him. Why didn't he just affirm that and move on? Well, as always, Jesus is motivated by love. As John affirms at the close of his book, he includes these incidents in Jesus' life that we would believe And that believing in him, we would possess life in his name. A particular kind of life. A life that death can't extinguish. A life of a new creation. A life of a new humanity. His desire here then is to push them deeper. That they might apprehend more fully the life that he offers. And so I ask all of you. Will we allow Jesus in love to push us deeper? that we might apprehend the fullness of the life he has to offer. Jesus invites us deeper. Verse 31, If you abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Abide in my word, let it dwell in you, live in you, make a home with you. Now what does that look like? We looked at that earlier in the series and we're guided by a particular illustration. Let's say you buy a new piece of furniture for your home or apartment. Something many of us did in the midst of the pandemic because we were spending more time at home and wanted to beautify our space. 
when we brought that new piece of furniture into our home, we had to move some things around to accommodate it, right? Or maybe we even had to get rid of some things so that new piece of furniture might find its rightful place. Abide in my word. Let it live in you, dwell in you, make a home with you. Let it reorder things. Let it push some things out. Let it guide you. Let it direct you. And you will know the truth, says Jesus. And the truth will set you free. That seems an incredible offer, right? Truth, freedom, who wouldn't want that? But his listeners are angry, offended. Why? Because to offer someone freedom is to imply that they aren't free. That they're enslaved to someone, to something. But we're children of Abraham, they sputter. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Which at some level just isn't true, right? Grievously, up to this point in history, the Jewish people had been enslaved to almost every world power. But nothing could touch their status as God's chosen people as children of Abraham. In light of that identity, that status, they possessed deep inner freedom, something that no circumstance could ever change. But Jesus invites them to open up their eyes, to see the nature of their slavery. Verse 34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus saying, I think what he's saying is that underneath every pattern of sin in our lives, and every single one of us have a pattern of sin, there's something that we're enslaved to, something that we've given control over our lives over to. For example, why do we lie? Well, we might lie because we want other people to think well of us. We're enslaved to, we've given control over to our reputation. Why might we not respond in love and generosity to the needs around us? It could be because it would inconvenience us. It would cost us something. We're enslaved to, we've given control over to our comfort. Why can't we admit our wrong and move toward forgiveness? Well, it could be because we don't want to appear to be weak. We're enslaved to, we've given control over to power. Behind every pattern of sin in our lives is something that we've given control over to. Be it money, sex, success, achievement, it could be any number of things. But Jesus also wants them to see another face to their lack of freedom. Verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the child remains forever. Now, in the ancient world, a servant's relationship with the head of house was always insecure, right? Why? Because it was based on performance. Good performance, that servant's status, would increase within the household. Bad performance, they would be demoted, sold, or worse. But the child's relationship with the head of house was always secure. Neither good performance nor bad performance could change it. I think what Jesus is trying to reveal to them is that their relationship to the living God is not as a child to a loving parent, but as an employee to a boss. Where there is bad performance, they're fearful. Is God going to get me? Where there's good performance, there's pride, a sense of entitlement. I've done the right thing. God owes me. 
I am the way, Jesus is saying, to freedom from the enslavement that sits under every pattern of sin in your life. I am the way to a relationship with God that is of a child to a loving parent, not as an employee to a boss. His first listeners are angry, offended. For to receive such freedom, they must first acknowledge that they aren't free. Now, the modern listener is also angry and offended for some of the same reasons that they were. For to receive the forgiveness of sin is to acknowledge that we're enslaved to it. To receive adoption as a child of God is to acknowledge that our relationship with God is severed. The modern listener is also angry and offended because the freedom that Jesus offers doesn't at all seem like freedom, right? Jesus says, abide in my word and you'll be free. Receive the constraints of my word and you'll be free. And that doesn't at all sound like freedom to the modern ear. As I was preparing the sermon, I came across the work of Isaiah Berlin. He was an Oxford professor of political philosophy in the 20th century. who said that here in the West, we conceive of freedom as absolute negative freedom, as freedom from every and all constraints on our personal choices. If anyone or anything constrains our choices, then we can't say to be free. I think we've seen that borne out in the pandemic, haven't we? I have a friend who's a physician. And right at the beginning of the pandemic, when cases were spreading in China, but there were only a few here in North America, said the impact of this pandemic is going to come down to differences in culture. She predicted that China would come through with far less mortality than here. Why? Because generally in Asian culture, community and family is given higher value than that of the individual. And so the individual will constrain their freedom for the sake of others. Whereas here in the West, and in particular she was referencing the U.S. in this comment, individual freedom is paramount. No one or nothing can constrain my freedom to do what I want to do. And as a result, I think she rightly predicted not only the increased mortality but also the rhetoric that would define our Western response. But to pursue such a freedom, the freedom from any constraints on our personal choices, is to pursue pure fantasy. For we will never, ever come to possess a freedom which is the absence of all constraints, right? Think of any relationship you find yourself in. Be it a friendship, a marriage, a parent-child. In order for that relationship to survive and thrive, for those who are involved in it to receive the fullness of joy that that relationship can give, both parties are going to have to, to varying degrees and to varying ways, constrain their freedom for the sake of the relationship. Not only relationships, but think of most of the decisions we make in life. Most of them are about constraining our freedom in one area, so that we might experience greater freedom in another. Tim Keller gives the example of a man who gets a whole lot of joy and comfort in life from eating whatever he wants to eat. 
over time, he begins to face some health complexities. Goes to his doctor, and after some tests and conversation, the doctor says to him, if you keep going on eating whatever you, you want to eat, you're going to be at great risk for a stroke or heart attack. The man's left with a choice, right? Either he constrains his freedom to eat whatever he wants to eat in order to experience the freedom of longevity, or he carries on eating whatever he wants to eat, but he must live within the constraints of his declining health. So if there's ultimately no such thing as freedom being the absence of any and all constraints, the question must be, which constraints are in our best interests? Which constraints undergird our full flourishing as human beings? And Jesus' answer is this, abide in my word, accept the constraints of my word, and you will truly be free. Jesus presses this further in some of the verses we didn't print. In verse 51, he says, If anyone keeps my word, they will not see death. Now, this is not to say that we won't die or we won't taste death, as his listeners right, wrongly misunderstand him. What he's saying is that his word is perfectly suited for life perfectly suited for who we were designed to be. And if you violate the design of something, it's going to break down. It'll lead to death. Perhaps we could see it this way. When you buy a car, you're given an owner's manual, right? And within that owner's manual, there's a, a maintenance schedule, right? The engineers are saying, this car is going to work to its optimum. It's going to work as it was designed to work if you follow this schedule. Are you free to ignore it? Well, absolutely. You can, you're free not to change the oil, but in time, that car is not going to function the way it was intended to function. It will eventually break down. Abide in my word. Receive the constraints of my word, for my word is perfectly suited for who you were designed to be. It will lead to life. You see, the freedom that Jesus offers is not absolute negative freedom. It's not the freedom from constraint. It's freedom for. Freedom for what? For love. For that's how Jesus summarizes his word. Love God. Love others. Allow love to constrain you. And you will be free. You will flourish. You will live as you were designed to live. S.I. McMillan was a medical doctor and missionary. who wrote a book entitled, None of These Diseases. And he was reflecting on his many years as a physician, observing the disintegration of people's material reality when they lived out of step with the constraints of love. For example, in one of his chapters called The High Cost of Getting Even, he chronicles the health consequences of harboring anger, bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness. He saw patient after patient with intestinal issues and high blood pressure that medicine was only nailing the symptoms of when true healing and wholeness was to be found 
in receiving the constraints of God's word, the constraints of love. Love your enemies. Forgive. Pray for those who harm you. Abide in my word. Keep my word. Receive the constraints of love. For my word is perfectly suited for who you were designed to be. And you will be free. Now, understandably, and again, these are in verses that weren't printed, his listeners are outraged by such a claim. Verse 53, who do you think you are? They have their suggestions. You're either a lunatic or a demon from hell. So what's Jesus' answer? How does he substantiate the claim that his word is perfectly suited for our humanity? As I mentioned, this conversation happens in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles. A feast that was surrounding three core elements, water ceremony, light ceremony, and embedded in the feast liturgy, a core affirmation of who God is. In the water ceremony, Jesus has stood up and said, Come to me if you're thirsty. In the light ceremony, Jesus has said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't walk in darkness. But what of the core affirmation of who God is embedded in the liturgy? Well, like our feasts of Christmas and Easter and Pentecost, there are particular passages of Scripture that are read and reflected upon, and it was no different in the Feast of Shelters. The same texts were read year after year, sung year after year. And I'm indebted to Regent Professor Daryl Johnson's insight here. For all of the texts that were chosen for this feast, inclusive of our first reading, surround one core truth, that God graciously dwells in the midst of his people. Huge swaths of the Old Testament scriptures describe in detail the shelter that God asks his people to build for him in the desert, so that when they're wandering the desert in shelters, God too will wander the desert in a shelter. That shelter, tabernacle, later became the temple in Jerusalem, but the core truth remained, I am a God who dwells in the midst of my people. Now all of the texts that were read at the festival pointing to this truth of God's self-revelation, contained the words, I, I am, I am he who dwells in the midst of my people. In Hebrew, that was captured in two words, ane, ane who. Scholars tell us that by the first century, those two words, ane, ane who, had become the summary of the theological affirmation that sat at the core of the feast. Ane, ane who? I, I am he who dwells in the midst of my people. Ane, ane who? On the Sabbath of this festival, this very day, the Levitical priests would sing around the altar God is in his temple. A priest would respond in song, be still and know that I am God. While a choir of priests would chant, Ane, Ane who, Ane, Ane who, I, I am he, 
Ane, Ane who, Ane, Ane who, on and on. These words and affirmation would echo through the entire festival, would be reverberating off the walls of the temple as the people yearn for a time when God would once more dwell with his people. And now here in the temple, on the Sabbath of the festival, in conversation with Jesus, they demand, who do you think you are? To make such a claim that your word is perfectly suited for our humanity. You're either a lunatic or a demon from hell. Who do you think you are? And Jesus responds, Before Abraham was, Ane, Ane who? I, I am he. Ane, Ane who? And they pick up stones with murderous intent. John Stott, reflecting on the responses given to Jesus in the scriptures, says that we only see three responses to Jesus. People either ran in terror, they insulted with fury, or they prostrated themselves in utter surrender. Jesus, in love, has invited us deeper to encounter who he truly is. How will we respond to Ane, Ane who? Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you in love push us deeper, that we would come to see who you are, to place our trust in you, that we might apprehend life, a life that death can't extinguish, a life of a new creation, a new humanity. By your Spirit, lead us to abide in your word, to accept the constraints of your word, which are the very constraints of love, that we would be truly free. For in his service, there is perfect freedom. In that freedom, may we live in anticipation of the day that you will return to make everything new, the day that Abraham saw and rejoiced. For we pray this to Jesus' glory alone. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.